Well, today is a sad day for King Saul. We've been reading through the story of King Saul and we're seeing how um, God has been giving him all kinds of mercies, all kinds of chances to be faithful to him. And King Saul just continually be, it ends up being about himself more than he is about God. And so today, is, it's a sad day. It's a very heavy passage today because this is the last call for King Saul. God is going to shut his kingship down. And in and through it, we're going to learn, Lord willing, a lot about the sovereignty and the majesty of God, but and most importantly through that, the hope that we have in Christ. And so if you are, this is a very, this is a long reading again, uh, so I'm not going to ask you to stand, but let's, let's listen intently together. Our confession says that we are to listen intently to the word of God as the spirit speaks to us through it. So this is. This is God's inerrant word. Starting, we're going to start at uh, chapter 14, verse 47, and go all the way through chapter 15. Now, when Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them and did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishua, and the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab, and the name of the younger, Michal. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the, fall, was the father of of Saul and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul, and when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted that Amalek did to Israel. I have noticed what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And so Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them, for you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. And so the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites, from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction." Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel. He said, I regret that I have made Saul king, 
for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and then turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? And Saul said, Well, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. And then Samuel said, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the Lord's voice. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, the sheep, the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. And so Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. And then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agog, the king of the Amalekites. And Agog came to him cheerfully. Agog said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted 
that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, this passage seems so crazy harsh to our ears. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see your justice through this. Uh, And more importantly, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see how susceptible we are to the same type of sin and pride that Saul was, that the Amalekites were, that eventually spun so out of control that you had to shut it down. But more important than that, Lord, we pray that you would show us the beauty of Christ and what it is that you offer us in Jesus and how he is truly the only solution to this awful mess that we find ourselves in in this evil age, Lord. You are good, that you are just, and that you are merciful in having given us a Savior and a way out of this mess and into the beauty of the world to come, Lord. Help us to see that. Give us minds to understand and and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise to beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a a professor, a theologian at at Dallas Seminary named John Hanna, and, and John Hanna has one of my favorite quotes. He says, he said, I used to think that evil people did evil things for evil reasons. But the more I study history, the more I realize that evil people do evil things for what they believe are very good reasons. As an example of that, continuing to parallel the life of King Saul with the life of Anakin Skywalker, we see that Anakin Skywalker did not become Darth Vader overnight. If you look at his life, it was really the, the desire of Anakin's heart uh, was that, that slowly transformed him was Anakin's desire to be, and more important than that, to be seen as the greatest Jedi who ever lived, the most powerful of anyone who ever lived. Anakin's heart was so set on self-glory. Really, there's a word that we used to have in the English language called, called vainglory, which we don't even use anymore because it's now vainglory is now really a, uh, it's more of a virtue in our culture than a vice. So we don't even use that word anymore, but vainglory meant someone who was so uh, extremely focused on self-glory, glorifying themselves in front of the world uh, that it, their pride caused them to spiral into destructive patterns of behavior. And that is the definition of what Anakin was. He so incrementally moved from Anakin Skywalker to Darth Vader by these slow and incremental decisions to self-glory that when he eventually crossed the line into an evil that was not, that he couldn't return from, not only did he not realize that that's what he had done, he did it thinking that he was doing good, that he was avenging his mother's death, that he was recreating the empire in a way that saved everyone from the corruptions of the Senate, that he was working towards saving his loved ones from death. And so what became what were small outbreaks of rage and anger at his inability to achieve self-glory then became 
big outburst of uncontrollable anger, which then became controlled outbursts of rage and anger. And he slowly moved from killing a village of Tuscan raiders to wiping out the entire school of young Padawan Jedis. And it happened so slow and so incrementally that he didn't even realize it was happening. The the evil desire of his heart overtook him so slowly and steady that he really unknowingly and yet still willfully spun out and it drifted past the point of no return. And that is what we see has happened to King Saul in this chapter. The the fact that King Saul has has a bad heart, that he's focused, so hard focused on self-glory has been percolating to the surface ever since the very beginning of his story. But now, in this story, it comes out so strongly, uh, we see that his drive, King Saul's drive for self-glory has become so strong, so out of control, and so dangerous that God finally has to pull the plug on it and shut down Saul's kingship. And so there's a big warning, big warning in this passage for us is that our sin, our sin can become so dangerous, so out of control, both individually and corporately uh, in our groups, in our nations, in our even churches, um, that sometimes God has to shut it down. But there's a big hope in this as well because we all fall into that category uh, God lays this out for us in such stark detail because this is why the world needs Jesus so badly. So that's the big idea of this passage is that, is that eventually, eventually sin becomes so bad that God has to shut it down. And this is exactly why the world needs Jesus. Let's look at that one part. One part at a time. Eventually, sin becomes so bad. Uh, We see here Saul's rejection of God becomes solidified. And he's, what's sad about this is he's moved beyond the point of of no return. If you read it, if you read it quickly though, you read the chapter through it, it may lead you to think that, that Saul repented at the end, right? Just like David did. And so, even though he might have been slower on the uptake than David was in repenting. Finally, he did repent, and so that's good, right? Well, the answer is, is no, it wasn't good. It was, it was, it was bad, and, and this is why. Let me run through the lowlights of what just really happened here. So Saul, this, the chapter starts with Samuel coming to Saul and saying, listen, listen, listen. The most important thing for you to do is listen, and in Hebrew that means listen and obey the word of the Lord, and then he gives him this awful command, which we're going to talk about in a minute, but just roll with me here for a minute. Gives him this awful command to go to this Amalekite culture that has become so evil and so corrupt over the course of hundreds of years that God has to shut it down, and he uses Saul to do that, and he says to Saul, wipe them off the face of the earth. And instead, what Saul does is he does the things that will give him glory as a great king, but he takes all the best stuff for himself and for his leaders 
as spoils of war and he comes back, he does not. He disobeys God's commandment. And yet, and when Saul, Samuel comes to Saul, he twice he confronts him with the fact that he did not listen to what God says. And twice Saul adamantly defends himself and says, no, I did the commandment of the Lord. I'm basically a good guy. Why? Why would he do that? Why is Saul hanging on to that so desperately? Well, this is what's really going on in here. The first clue of what's happening through this whole thing is that Saul just straight up sets up a monument to himself. Instead of building an altar to the Lord, Saul just builds an altar to himself and his great victory, just like all the kings of the nation. Saul wants to be seen as the great king. And then second clue Saul keeps uh, Agag, the king, alive because in that, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, if you had prisoners that were kings, you were seen as a king of kings. If you had kings in your dungeons, you were seen as an extra powerful king. And that's what Saul wanted to be. He wanted to be famous as a king over kings. Third clue, Saul repents at the end of it, but only kind of sort of. He blames, shifts other people in it. The people made me do this. Uh, He admits really in it that he feared what the people thought of him even more than he feared God. So his main concern was status before his people. Uh, But the clincher is, the clincher comes at the end when he says, when he confesses, he says, I have sinned And yet honor me before the elders of Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And we hear that and we think, look, he repented. He wants to go to Jerusalem or or he wants to go back and worship God with Samuel. But that was what that was, was the national victory party over Saul's great military success. And what Paul or what Saul wanted really more than anything was to be honored before the elders of Israel and to participate in this, this national ceremony that would laud him as the great military victor. And so he repented because that's what it t- was going to take for him to get what he wanted. So what's the, com- what's the common theme going through that whole story? The common theme isn't Saul's repentance in the way that David repented for being sorrowful for for, for disobedience to God, the main con- the common thing what Saul, the fruit that Saul is showing about who he really is through this success that he's been rolling through all these military victories is that more than anything else, what Saul is driven by is he wants people to think that he's great. Vainglory. Self-glory. Uh, it's, it, it means excessive vainglory. It means excessive or ostentatious pride where you put your own glory, meaning your own, uh, everything, what you want, your own fame, your own preferences, your own desires, your, getting your own way over and above everything else, putting it first, even over and above what God had called him to do as the king of Israel, and now it has become really so out of control in Saul's life that he doesn't even know he's lying. That's what's happening. Twice Samuel says, but you didn't listen. 
And Samuel says, or Saul says, yes, I did. Yes, I did. Because in his mind, he's convinced himself that he's basically a pretty righteous guy. He might have missed the mark a little bit here and there, but he doesn't even see how far he has drifted away from honoring God and how much this self-glory has sunk its hooks into him and is pulling him. And with it, the people of Israel into what will eventually lead into patterns of sin and destruction that will begin to harm and hurt a lot of people. And that's the danger, danger of self-glory, the danger that we need to think about for vainglory is that just like, just like Saul, just like Anakin, we can incrementally make these little decisions based on self without really even realizing it. And before you know it, it has snuck up upon us and we have drifted into a place where we're basically trying to establish our own kingdom for our own glory without really even realizing that's what's happened. Scary. Super scary part of human nature. This is, you want to ask, you want to ask yourself a super scary question? You can ask yourself about just about anything. You can say, why am I doing this? Why am I doing X? Am I doing this for my kingdom? Or am I doing this for God's kingdom? Why do I live where I live? Why do I have the house that I do? Why do I drive the car that I do with the car payments that I have? Why do I go to the school I go to? Why do I send my kids to the school they go to? Is it to glorify God? Or is it to glorify myself in front of other people? Is it to expand my kingdom? Or is it to expand God's kingdom? Why do I go to the church that I go to? about that one? Is it because I believe that that church is on the cutting edge of ministry bringing the gospel to the nations or because it serves me in some way that makes me comfortable? That's a scary question. Here's the, here's the scary part about it. You'll ask yourself that question. If you're like, this is what happens to me. <laughs> when I ask myself that question, I'll hit, a, I'll hit a sore spot where I realize I'm really doing something for my own glory and it's taking away from my consecrating myself to living for God's glory. And when I hit that sore spot, my brain starts to immediately throw up all of these super rational explanations as to why it's really God's glory, but not mine. But underneath that, a leather level down, there's just like this weird feeling in my heart. You know what I'm talking about? You guys are smiling. Y'all smiling. You know what I'm talking about. Listen, listen to God's response. Listen to God's response to Saul's partial obedience that he believes is full obedience. God says, and this is the the centerpiece of this passage. God says, in verse 22 and 23, his response is, he says, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. And then he says, For rebellion, partial obedience, is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. He's saying two things in that, two scary things in that. First is, he's telling Saul, 
who's basically lied and said, we saved these things to sacrifice for the Lord. Saul is telling him, no, look, you can't make up for your disobedience by trying to manipulate God with ritual, which we talked a lot about over the last couple of weeks. Saul was the master of that. Uh, But the second thing he says is that it says that our disobedience or our, what we want to say is our partial obedience in, in, in God's eyes, the sin of it, God says it's equal with straight up witchcraft or with pagan religious worship. I don't want to, I don't want to think that about myself. I mean, I want to think, I had this dialogue with this woman on Facebook for one of our posts about what it meant to be a child of God, how God adopts us through Christ. And he came with this long long post about how everyone's a child of God and sin in the original language just means to miss the mark and it's really no big deal. But what God, God is saying that any missing of the mark uh, is, as, is, is, is as bad as the sin of straight up witchcraft, Satanism. Which is confirmed. James says the same thing in the New Testament. If you are a keeper of the law, but you break one point, you are a law breaker. There's two categories, biblical categories. Law keeper, law breaker. You break one law, you broke the law and are a law breaker. Which, bring, which, which, which shows us the super scary theology that the standard to be righteous before God it's not a sliding scale. It is not uh, a partial obedience. Even if we can hit 90%, the standard God requires for righteousness is perfect obedience. And that's scary. Why is that scary? Because we all know experientially that none of us are capable of perfect obedience. There's a solution for that I'm going to get to in a minute, but let me just, let that just sit with you for a minute. Here's the, here's, and here's the sad, the sad ending of this chapter of Saul's life is the end, it's the, really it's the end of the road for Saul's kingship. God is not offering him another opportunity to repent here. He's just saying, He's saying your sin has got, become so bad, so devastating, so dangerous that I'm cutting you off. Not from salvation necessarily. We want to make sure we keep those categories straight. But he's taking him out of the kingship of Israel. And, and Saul, we know at the end, Saul grabs Samuel's robe, which in that culture was a sign of repentance or supplication. And, and the robe tears. And Samuel says to Saul, this is a sign from God. He's saying, just as my robe is torn, so has the kingdom been torn out of your hand. It's over. And why? Why is God so drastic here? Because, because the refusal to really repent, which Saul is doing, creates a separation from God, a separation from the power of God that's so necessary. And that separation leads, as we're going to see in Saul's life, to more and more erratic and destruction and destructive behavior, Saul, by his refusal to repent, goes into a free fall 
of sin and it becomes his delusion and his rebellion becomes so dangerous that God has to remove him from power. Now, uh, seeing now, seeing that, seeing how Saul's personal sin has become so dangerous that God had to shut it down, it puts us in a little bit better position to deal with the most difficult part of this entire passage, to understand why it might be necessary, why it would be that God would have to shut down an entire culture. Second, second point, that God has to shut it down. God, eventually sin becomes so bad, point one, that point two, that God has to shut it down. Let me reread uh, the uncomfortableness of verse three. Listen to this. This is what God commands Saul to do. He says, Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. What do you think about that? Let's say you had an unbelieving friend over for dinner, and you, uh, this would probably not be one of your go-to passages for your evangelism, right? Why? Because this just sounds crazy evil to our ears, to our cultural ears. It's almost impossible for us for, to read that and to think, how is it even possible that God could command that? And so there are, all, there are giant books of theology written to explain a way that this really wasn't from God. Or even theologies that try to post against one another character of God in the Old Testament with the character of God in the New Testament. Uh, this sounds crazy to us. Listen, to, this is how this sounds. This is how this sounds to a person who um, does not understand or has no, no categories for God's sovereignty, God's majesty, the fall of mankind or anything. This is a, one of my favorite quotes from Richard Dawkins. I love these extreme quotes. This is Richard Dawkins is a, one of the new atheists. He wrote a book called The God Delusion. And this is how he responds to passages. This is how he responds to God based on passages like this. He says this. He says, he says the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniac, mega, megalomaniac, mega, help me, <laughs> megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Tell us how you really feel, Richard. Man. And he believes that based on passages like this, man. If you have your dinner guests over, they hear that and they be like, okay, yeah, I'm not really worried about Saul disregarding this command. I think that might 
I think I'm more concerned about God commanding it in the first place. Look, uh, this is a big, heavy, gnarly topic in theology. On one hand, there's tons of books written about this that explain this in a very thorough way that I would encourage you to look up if you really want to get to the bottom of it. But we also don't want to, I just don't want to just punt and say, read the books, let's move on. We need to at least address it in one way, in some way. And I can say at least five things about this to help reset our minds to what's happening here. First, uh, if you're not a Christian, this one's not going to be super compelling to you. But for those of us who are Christians, we need to remember that the whole world is already under the sentence of death, but that sentence has been deferred by God in His mercy to allow the process of salvation to play out. In other words, the original mankind disobeyed God in such a, a brutal and rebellious way that they incurred spiritual death and were separated from God, and God could have justly ended the entire project, but has decided to defer judgment to allow the human race to continue so that his salvation, his plan of salvation, can play out across the earth. And yet, we see, uh, and so we see that everyone who has ever lived has really experienced unmerited grace in the fact that they are alive. So if God were to take that away, God is only bringing justice. He's removing unmerited mercy and bringing strict justice. God is not practicing strict justice in this age or or in that age. But every once in a while, we see that God steps in to correct mass evil on the face of the earth. Noteworthy of that? The flood, which makes this look like not that big a deal. Uh, Second thing is that just as our individual sin can totally spiral out of control like it did in the life of King Saul, so too our, our, uh, our corporate sins, our group sins, can reach a point uh, where, they, where they, be, they, they spin out of control and, dis- and devolve into patterns that are so destructive and so oppressive uh, that they become dangerous, not just to themselves, to their descendants, but to everyone around them. There's three main patterns of deep destruction that we see in the Old Testament around these types of incidents. One is extreme predatory violence and warfare. The, the, the instance that God brings up in this is the Amalekites when, when, the, when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, when everyone had heard of God's miraculous delivery, a deliverance of God's people, the Amalekites like hustled and marched across to the south from where they lived specifically to attack the Israelites. They knew they were God's people. They knew they were God's blessed people and they wanted to snuff them out as soon as they could and the way they did it was they waited for all of Israel to pass and then when the stragglers and the sick and the old and the young were in the back, they attacked the back first killed all them, uh, and then attacked the main force. And it caused a major battle in the very early life of Israel. And they never changed. There's evidence even in secular, uh, uh, secular um, academics about the, the evil nature of the Amalekites. The second, the second pattern of destruction was 
massive child sacrifice on a scale that we can't even imagine. And maybe the best thing for us to do to, to put some uh, understanding on it is to look at the child sacrifice of Toltecs or Aztecs or, or Incas in South America. That were, it, we know that there were ritual sacrifices of thousands and thousands of children over the course of a weekend. Uh, and the Canaanites were specialists in this practice. There's all sorts of archaeological evidence to the massive level of child sacrifice that they were engaged in. Uh, and on top of that was extreme sexual immorality, in, including incest uh, and child abuse. Uh, just completely self-glory had dug into them so deeply that they completely disregarded the created order uh, that is obvious in all of creation and violated that for their own pleasure at the expense and at the harm of other people. Um, And so the Amalekites, by all accounts, secular and Christian, really, uh, you know, God says in, in, in 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 this order, he says, devote them to destruction, which means wipe them out. But if you look at their culture... They were devoted to practices of destruction that were so gross and so grievous that they became, they became cancerous. The third is that evil, uh, speaking of that, evil can become so great that it acts like a virus to the surrounding people. This is not genocide or ethnic cleansing. This is God shutting down false religious practices that endangered the eternal destinies of all the cultures around them. And not only that, but the continuing generations of that culture as fathers and mothers passed down their their completely corrupted, wicked practices to their own children. Uh, Many theologians believe in something called the age of accountability. Even if you're a reform and believe in election, you can believe that children who die before they understand their own sinful nature, are elect of God. And I would propose that children in that culture who have a choice between being brought into the evil practices that guarantee their eternal destruction would be better off being brought straight into heaven. Fourth, the Amalekites had 400 years to repent. And they continued knowingly, willfully hating God and God's people. And fifth, this is really a picture of hope. (laughs) How is that? What this says is that God will not stand idly by and and ignore the gross suffering of His creation, especially of His people. That there comes a point in time when God will step in and say, enough, enough. Nuff. And the evil becomes so dangerous that he has to shut it down. Uh, we don't understand this because Christians are pretty much still at the top of the food chain culturally. Who does understand this well is the persecuted church. The persecuted church, building on Tim's sermon from last week, when the persecuted church prays, your kingdom come, in a big way what they're praying is for 
Revelation 19 and 20 to come to pass for the Lord to come back and devote all of God's enemies to destruction, to free them, to free us from under the oppression of that level of evil. And so really the most terrible part of this, the most terrible part of this story isn't so much that it happened in the past, but that it is a picture of the final day, the coming day of judgment. There's a word theologians have for this called intrusion ethics, meaning that when God in His holiness, when heaven comes into the fallen world, intrudes into the fallen world, it brings with it the ethics of heaven, which is perfect Strict justice, perfect righteousness, and with that comes the destruction of God's enemies. And the most, the most frightening part of this is not that it happened in the past, but that this is just a small picture of the final day of judgment when Christ comes again to judge the living and the dead. And so the thought that this, like Richard Dawkins, the thought that this is somehow unjust, that God is unjust in this, If we buy into that, it really just shows us how far we have bought into and been secularized into misunderstanding the justice of God and who God is and who we are. Okay, last last point. This is why the world so desperately needs Jesus. Now, look, the sad reality is that this is all of our reality, that outside of Christ... Uh, self-glory really is the only compelling virtue. Philosophers like Nietzsche were right. Outside of God, outside of the hope of God, the only compelling virtue left is, is our will to gain power over other people. Just like Saul, just like Anakin, just like the Amalekites, really everyone is prey to this. This tells us and in the me, what God wants us to know from all this isn't this awful judgment primarily. What he wants us to know is that this is the awful mess that we're in and that this is the reason why we so desperately need Jesus so that we will turn to him in faith and trust in his completed work for us, the gift of life that God is now currently offering to anyone who would take it. Jesus is the only one who can save us from this awful mess. Listen to this. Listen to this one verse, verse 17. I'm going to read the NASB version of it because it pulls out, it pulls the better, it's a better translation. Samuel said, Is it not true, talking to Saul, that though you were little in your own eyes, that you were made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed you king over all of Israel. The gospel is hidden in that little verse. In that little beautiful verse, he's saying, he's saying, Saul, you had nothing but this awful mess. And instead, God has given you everything. And for us, God has given us everything in the gospel. The awful mess that we have, the scary thing, the scary theology, is that what we talked about in the first point. The standard for righteousness is perfect obedience. And the bad news, why that's scary, is because your obedience is partial. My obedience is partial. On my best day, my obedience is partial. 
on my best day, my best work of righteousness is tainted with who's watching me do this? With vain glory. And the gospel says uh, that the unrelenting standard that draws, it says the unrelenting standard, that unrelenting standard of perfect righteousness drives us to the only solution that Jesus gives his perfect righteousness to his people by faith. He gives his righteousness to sinners, just like the tax collector in the temple who prayed, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's us. And Jesus said, that guy is justified, not by his works, but by relying on God's mercy. God sees us, those of us in Christ, and accepts us as beautiful and perfect. That's how God sees you. This awful mess that we're in also is that Jesus is coming back with full-scale and permanent intrusion ethic. But the gospel tells us that intrusion ethics, the ethics of heaven, perfect, strict judgment, was poured out on Jesus on the cross for his people. And so when we trust in him, when we rely on Jesus' work for us, it means that judgment has already passed. It's a thing of the past for the Christian so that when Christ comes again in glory, we have nothing to fear. That will be a day for us of celebration and rejoicing. And the awful mess that we're in, the third awful mess that we're in is that everyone, all of us are subject to, we all suffer from this continual drift into the tyranny of self-glory. And the only thing that can save us from that, the gospel says that living for the glory of God instead of the glory of self is the only thing that can save us from the discouragement, from the emptiness that vainglory produces, from the destructive patterns that it leads us into. When we come to grips when we internalize the gospel of everything that's true about us in Christ, that God has given us perfect ethical purity as a covering, that God has suffered death to give us life, and we can then find the power in the Spirit to stop listening to the internal flesh that's crying out to us that we have to do these things to be significant and instead to listen to the external call of Christ and the Spirit that is pouring through us, calling us to participate and grow in the divine nature, which then produces in us life and joy. We have the opportunities through this to become channels of divine power into the world. And so really, what, what in, this, in this, this question that, that Saul or Samuel asked Saul, what he's saying, when he's saying, you had nothing, and God gave you everything, he's saying, he's saying to Saul, and he's saying to us, he says, is that enough? Is what God has given you enough? Is it? Is eternal life and joy, is participation in the divine nature, is freedom from the tyranny of self-glory, is, is, is complete confidence in the coming day of judgment. It's the forgiveness of our sins and being given the protective covering of the righteousness of Christ. Is that enough for us? 
I say it is. You think so? I think so. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, your word is, is awful and terrible because it speaks truth and reality. We are so easily sucked into secular ways of thinking that we forget your glory, your majesty, your sovereignty, your perfection, your holiness. We forget how evil disobedience really is and try to justify ourselves. And your word wakes us up, Lord, to the reality of what sin really is, the underlying ugliness and awfulness of sin, Lord. But you do that not to shame us, not to put us down, Lord, but to show us how desperately we need the solution that you've given us. That you are holy, but you are also merciful, Lord, and that you have offered Jesus and his salvation to anyone who would seek to escape the coming judgment, Lord. And I pray that you would help us to see what it is that you've given us, the value of it, so that we would be so grateful that our lives would be continually refocused in devotion to you and in consecrating ourselves to your glory and not ours, and that through us we would become channels of divine life and in that you would give us life and joy and give us the privilege of bringing divine life to the nations, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.